Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we continue a discussion that has spanned the last two episodes, where first we addressed reliability, then invariance, and today we talk about scoring. We also discuss Neil Peart, Needless Aggression, Time Travel, Wrapping the MMPI, Paying the Reaper, Pokes in the Eye, Circling the Drain, and Using the Word Imbricate. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So, Greg, I checked email this morning before sitting down with you, and we have several more limerick submissions. <laughs> okay. I am loving these already. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Don't so, give it away. Don't give it away. I, I am not. I will. Okay. I will not. And, and remember, folks, we have a special guest reader on mm. March 17th. He also left a bit of a cantankerous voicemail message on our Google number. If you want to hear a little hint of who our guest is, call the Google mm-hmm. number and you can leave your limerick there as a voice memo. Greg, remind us how people can submit their limericks. Sure. Uh, there are a variety of ways. There is an email set up and the email is limerick at quantitude pod. Is that right? It is not right. <laughs> All right. It is limerick at quantitudethepodcast.org. Attaboy. That's one way. You can email it in. Uh, another way is that you can go to the website and go directly into the portal there, and you can submit your limerick there in text, or as Patrick just said, leave it to us in your own voice. Please leave us your limerick in your own voice, and then those ones that get chosen will be played on uh, the 17th. And feel free, this is not required, and and believe me, coming from me, it is not required. If you are so motivated to leave it in your own Irish accent, by all (laughs) means, or if you're part of my tribe and everything Uh just comes out as a pirate, that's fine too. (laughs) We will consider pirate limericks. Uh Uh-huh. So remember, the website is quantitudethepodcast.org. And also, we have a couple minute video on YouTube. We now have a YouTube channel that has one video that's like two minutes long. But if you want to see the visual call for the limericks, including Greg's on-the-spot pop quiz (laughs) limerick, uh, there's a link to that on the webpage as well. It's right on the front when you go to it. Very cool. Excellent. So we are very excited about this. The main motivation for this is not only celebrating my namesake, but more importantly, Greg and I have functionally stopped working at our day jobs due to this podcast, and we're trying to pull you all down with us. Yep. Come on. So, <laughs> Here we go. You know, that's the general rule is if you're starting to fall off the stage, reach out and grab those around you. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Also, the next thing is the puzzler. It was uh, two weeks ago now because we didn't have it in, in last week's, but we have a solution to the puzzler. Just a very quick reminder. Greg got a grant from IES. He got enough funding to hire an RA for seven days, and IES sent him a gold bar, a single gold bar, which evidently they're doing now. And the bar has seven numbers on it. Between each number is a little tick mark between one and two and two and three and so on. And you have to pay the RA that many gold pieces for that particular day. So when they leave on the first day, they have one. When they leave on the second day, they have two. And because they're RAs, 
They can't spend it until all the work is done. And the question is, what are the fewest number of cuts you can make on the bar where the grad student can take that many pieces home on that particular day? You could make six cuts, get seven pieces, and then just pay them one every day, but that's no fun. You can do fewer. So the question is, what are the fewest number of cuts? And the answer, thanks to my 15-year-old daughter who helped me figure it out, is you can actually do it with just two cuts. If you put a cut between number one and two and a cut between number three and four, it gives you three pieces. There's a single piece, there's a piece that has two, and there's a piece that has four. And so on the first day, you give them the one piece and they go home and they come back. And on the end of the second day, they give you back the one piece and you give them the two piece. Mm. And then on the third day, you give them the one for three. Then they give them back the four, the five, the six, the seven, and then they're fully paid. They get to rush to Hardee's and buy waffle fries because they haven't <laughs> eaten in seven days. You get to put your name on their work. And it's really a win-win situation. <laughs> Oh, wow. Very clever. Very clever. I uh, I had a different solution, uh, which I won't share, but it took three cuts. So nice. That was very, very clever. Thank you. All right. So we have done an earlier episode on reliability, and then our mm -hmm. most recent one was on invariance. A little pop quizzy. Give us a 15-second summary of the invariance episode, Dr. <laughs> Hancock. Go. All right. Uh, for a single factor, there are a variety of indicators that are meant to be observable manifestations of that factor. The question is whether or not the factor's impact on those indicators or observable manifestations perform the same across groups or across time. And so we talked about the testing of whether or not those paths, those loadings, are invariant which has extensions to intercepts and other parameters as well. Outstanding. Thank you, sir. That really was a pop quiz. We talked for a few minutes <laughs> before these and kind of lay out, and I, mm -hmm. I didn't tell them that was coming. So well done. No. <laughs> Thank you. The way I think about it is, do you use the word, it depends? The giveaway is, if you describe an effect as, it depends, you have an interaction. You know mm -hmm. that. So what is the treatment effect? 0.5. All right, that's a main effect. What is the treatment effect? Well, it depends. Are you talking about boys and girls? Then you have an interaction. And invariance fundamentally rests on it depends. What is the factorial expression of depression that might underlie 10 items? If you say it depends, are you talking pre or post puberty? Are you talking boys and girls? Then you have invariance. So we, we argued lots about that last week and hopefully came to some resolution on what the key issues are and kind of what we need to be paying attention to. But there is a logical step that follows that. Oh my gosh, we're doing another double album. All right. So let's see. I'm trying to remember. You mentioned, we each mentioned double albums before your favorite double album was a live album. Am I right? Yeah, you kind of dissed on that implicitly. I don't know if you what? recall that. Yeah, you did. Is oh. I said, I said exit oh. stage left and you said, oh, that was a live album, right? Like oh. somehow that doesn't count. So I'm, I'm still a little hurt by that. Okay, I just, I'll just, let me just clarify really quickly. The only diss is that it's not generally new material. So it's a collection of things that have mm. already been done. And so a lot of double albums are those kinds of collections of things. Um, it's more rare that there's a double album or a triple album for that matter that contains all new material. So that was the only disc. I have full respect, full respect for that album and absolutely full respect for the artist, Rush. 
Okay, so I accept that premise entirely, but my double album was Exit Stage Left, and it's, it'll be a couple of weeks now when the, this actually drops. Terribly sad news is the Rush drummer passed away a few weeks back, Neil mm -hmm. Peart. He's considered one of the greatest drummers of all time, and, and that really is very sad. I don't know, folks, if you, if you like these musical documentaries, but there is a documentary on Rush that is streaming. I don't know one of the services you can get it, but it is really, really good. And it's one of those that's not everything is going great and you're waiting for the commercial break when they discover heroin or, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's always, there's never that point is these are mm -hmm. three guys who started a band in high school and they played for 50 years. I found their entire story just very affirming and motivating. And they're consummate, consummate musicians. Yeah, right? it's just incredible. One of the best drum solos he has is on YYZ on the exit stage left. So if you're interested, go listen to that. Okay, I've always wanted to do this, Greg. <clears throat> okay. Okay, okay, ready? I can't Just wait. for a sure. moment. Okay. Alexa, play Rush YYZ. Okay. Somewhere <laughs> on the face of the planet, YYZ is playing right now. <laughs> and we I want I want whoever that is to let us know by email or tweet or whatever that we <laughs> That Patrick just messed with your Alexa. <laughs> we talked about last week where factor analysis and, and the, the all of measurement theory, you can think of it, and there are many things that it can do, but the kind of the two big ones are, first, what is the psychometric structure that underlies a set of items? This is often theoretically driven. It is often critically important to understand how do these items unfold across group over time before and after treatment. And it's just kind of saying, we have these set of items. What is the underlying structure that gave rise to these? And are these similar or dissimilar across people and over time? That's kind of part A. That's disc one. That's mm -hmm. what we did last week. Disc two is, so what the heck do we do with that information? Sometimes that's a stopping point. There's an acculturation scale, and you're trying to understand what are differences across different ethnic racial groups in, in perceived acculturation, and that alone is the focus of interest. Mm -hmm. But many times, and in my own work, especially just in my own selfish use of these, that's only an intermediate step to then obtaining scale scores that I can go do something with. And so it's a very complicated, very expensive calculator and it brings mm -hmm. us to scoring, is how do you get an optimal combination of your set of items that reflects the quantity of the underlying latent construct that you believe to exist that is valid across group and over time? Can I, may I insert a couple of things here? I would love it if you did. All right. So thing one is, I don't know if we even need to talk about the across group or overtime part of this, although we can. We are interested in knowing how people can take a set of items and make make a score out of them, the different ways that they can make a score. And of course, we want that score to represent the same thing across groups or across time. But, but let's assume we have done the invariance testing and learned what we have learned, whether it's across group or time, and we have a set of items. And the question is, 
what the heck do we do with those items if we want to get a score? Is that fair to put a frame around that? Absolutely. You know, the other thing that I'll say right at the outset is that a lot of the things that you and I have been involved with for a very long time really get around the need for a score at all, right? A lot of what we do is taking the psychometric model that we talked about uh, a bit last week and try to embed that within whatever predictive or longitudinal model that we have. So in fact, we're asking questions and modeling directly at the level of that construct, rather than having to have this intermediate step where we spit out a score that someone can hold in their hand and say, oh, looks like I'm a 42 on acculturation or whatever it is we care about. But in fact, many people do need to get scores uh, at the end of the development of a particular instrument. So I think what we're going to try and focus on is how the heck do you do that? Is that reasonable? Yeah, no, absolutely. So what? We talked a lot last week about having a 10-item measure of depression. And thank, you, thank you for not making it toxic masculinity. I was, I was, I was dead sure you were going to make it a 10-item scale of toxic masculinity. That okay. comes later. <laughs> okay. Are you depressed about your toxic masculinity <laughs> is a more complicated question. It's a vicious cycle. Okay. The example that we used last week was, are there gender differences in depression before and after puberty? All right, so we kind of got a little two by two, and if we oversimplify, uh, is boy and girl and pre and post puberty? And it's a very interesting question, one that still hasn't been unambiguously resolved, which is, are there really gender differences in depression? And does that in some way vary as a function of whether it's pre-pubertal or post-pubertal? And what we talked about last week is we have to work really hard to make sure those 10 items operate in the same way for boys and girls and pre-puberty and post-puberty so that we can try to protect against threats to internal validity, right? So remember in a way early episode, we talked about internal validity is uh, the extent to which that we are accurate in ascribing causal mechanism. Mm -hmm. But it's one of the most important concepts of all of science is if you say there's a gender difference, is there really a gender difference or did you blow measurement? Mm -hmm. And maybe two items operate differently for boys and girls. You didn't account for that. And when failing to account for that, you're actually making a mistaken inference. Yeah, it's contaminating what you have in at least one of the groups. That's exactly right. Let's jump back in your time machine. All right. So you like going back. And this time, we're not going to slap uh -huh. anyone, which oh, I find oh. a little needlessly aggressive. <laughs> But that's an item on the histum. Do you feel the need to be needlessly aggressive? Oh, man. All right. All right. So we're going to teleport way back in time. And we used to only need a single item, right? What's the weight? What's the height? What is uh, uh, volume? What's the length? All right. And then it turns out, oh, wow, the entire rest of the social sciences, you need multiple indicators. And they were wrestling with this stuff over a hundred years ago, right? So people will yell at each other about it, but Spearman is identified mm. as the founder of factor analysis. And, and that was in 1904, I think. Yeah, we could go back before that. If we set our time machine back to the 1830s or so, um, Kedley, who, by the way, is responsible for 
huge things within the social sciences. He was an astronomer. The issue is that everything that almost everything that we measure has measurement error, and they knew that as astronomers back in the early 1800s when they were trying to measure uh, the movement of the planets. Even back in the 1830s, Kedlay was saying things like, "Well, let's take ten measurements, and then we'll average those," because he knew that each of those things had error in it. I don't think I would slap Kedlay. One of my favorite papers, classically, is in science, and it's by a guy named S.S. Stevens, all right? And if you want to be humble about how early people were dealing with this really complicated stuff, I highly recommend this paper. It's called On the Theory of Scales of Measurement. Now, let me read just a couple of lines. I, I queued it up here. And so the paper opens... For seven years, a committee of the British Association of the Advancements of Science. All right, so imagine just first being on a committee for seven years. Uh, the committee debated the problem of measurement. It was appointed in 1932 and was instructed to consider and report on the possibility of, quote, quantitative estimates of sensory events, quote, and it went on. Deliberation only led to disagreements. And I like this. There's a report in 1938 found one member complaining that his colleagues, quote, came out by the same door that they went in. Mm-hmm. And so nothing changed. They begged for additional time and gave a final report in 1940. And then he's writing in 1946 about this process. And then it's a really amazing paper. What I like is he gives what I think is arguably one of the clearest and best definitions of what is measurement. We may say that measurement in the broadest sense is defined as the assignment of numerals to objects or events according to rules. I love that. Mm -hmm. What that brings up to me is, okay, cool. What are the rules? Exactly. All right, so what are they? Uh, uh, be nice to people. Okay. Good. And always remember the referee never sees the original infraction, mm-hmm. but they always see the retribution. So just remember that. Okay, good. I really don't have anything else. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> All right. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> All right, so how do you do this? You've got a set of items, and these are items that relate to whether it's depression or some other scale. We will say you have a need to translate these items into some single score because you have, you've done the work of establishing that these are reasonably well undergirded, we'll say, by a single dimension. Um, maybe you have done some of the work to show that how these items relate to that dimension is reasonably, practically invariant uh, across groups, time, etc. But for whatever reason, someone who has created this instrument would like people to be able to compute a score. We'd like to hold a score in your hand so you can maybe diagnose people who reach certain thresholds or just understand something more about that characteristic at an individual level. So where do you go from there? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've spent 10 years working on various aspects of this and I still don't have a good answer for that. One of the most important starting points for me is to fully appreciate what psychometric model goes with what we usually do, which is to compute a mean or to compute a sum. Means and sums, and if everybody has the same number of items, those are the same. And so we're just going to talk about a mean score. 
Sure. All right, realizing that you could have binary variables and have a sum score or proportion score, or whatever. We're just going to talk about a mean score. Mm-hmm. So you got 10 items and cut us some slack. They're sufficiently continuous where we don't have to deal with nonlinearity. We do have an entire framework that allows for binary variables or trichotomous, but we're just going to have 10 continuous items that we add up and divide by 10, and that's a mean score. What's incredibly important to understand is that mean score corresponds to a particular factor Mm -hmm. model, all right? And that my, I guess my first kind of observation for this episode is if you use the mean score, and I want to be super clear, I have, I don't know how many papers that use mean scores or sum scores or proportion scores. And so this is not a holier than thou self-righteous kind of thing is what we're going to talk as the conversation proceeds is sometimes you simply have to make concessions. And if there are certain things further down the road that you want to do, that you need to do certain simplifications earlier in the process to allow you to move forward. Mm-hmm. That's going to bring up the poke and stick, right? Mm-hmm. Is that we can do some sensitivity analyses. That's going to bring up whack-a-mole because if we screw something up in the measurement part that may pop up later in when we're fitting a growth model or you know whatever it is that we're doing mm-hmm. the means there are a lot of advantages to using a mean score but i've been doing this for 20 years in my sem class we take 10 indicators a single dimension all right so just one latent factor so let's go back to the 10 items measuring childhood depression and you have a 10 indicator latent variable And you have factor loadings that represent the magnitude of the relation between the items and the underlying latent factors. And we have item intercepts that are the location of those and residual variances that is the measurement error that's in the full factor model. To get the mean score, we set all the factor loadings to one and we set the item residual variances to zero and estimate that model. That represents the psychometric model that is the mean score when you're using the mean of the 10 items. All right, two things occur to me when doing that. One is you have all the usual model fit statistics that you would in a typical CFA, and it is a train wreck. Mm -hmm. I have never done this in a class across a dozen different data files where that has been an adequate representation of the characteristics of the underlying data. The chi-square is 20 or 30 or 40 times the degrees of freedom. Fit indices are 0.6. The RMSEA, 0.25. No reasonable person would accept this Mm -hmm. as uh, an adequate representation of the characteristics of your empirical data. Yet that is what we're doing when we compute the mean score. We're saying that is the model that we believe to hold. So one is it doesn't represent the data. But second, it highlights the three cardinal assumptions we're making with a mean score, unidimensionality, equal weighting of the items, and no measurement error. All right, so again, it's come up in earlier conversations that much of life's philosophy can be drawn from Dirty Harry and Clint Eastwood, which is as Dirty Harry, he said, a man's got to know his limitations. Man's got to know his limitations. It is fine to use the mean score, recognizing that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's kind of my first observation. I don't know if I have a point to that other than you need to understand that's the psychometric model that represents what you're doing when you take the mean of 10 items. That's that's lost on a lot of folks, right? That take, cause, Because you've been taking an average since you were in third or fourth grade. The world has been taking an average for centuries, if not millennia. 
so what you're doing, which I think is really, really nice, is imagining that that was in many ways that score is the is a predictor an explainer of what's going on among all your variables and constraining it to have equal equal impact on all of those and 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 it works it works horribly almost always the question is where do we go from there and why right right, right. so if you were to start to fiddle with the knobs, make things a little bit better. And by the way, when I say better, there are air quotes around better because usually when you make things better in some way, there's something, you know, a little voice off in the wings going, but, but, but. So if we if we ignore the voice that's off in the wings and think about the advances that have been made for better and or worse from that point, how do you start ratcheting it up the complexity and and why does it seem like a reasonable thing? That is the key question. And that little voice is the reaper, Mm -hmm. right? Because remember, one thing we've talked about before is there are three key, I guess you could have four, but Uh three key rules for me of learning quantitative methods and using them well, which is look for general rules, Mm -hmm. look for patterns, and know that you always pay the reaper. Mm -hmm. All right, so those are kind of the big three. The fourth I have is like 90% of what I know about statistics is mnemonics. I have little like rhymes and poems and this goes way back to grad school. I was trained as a clinician Mm -hmm. and uh, we learned the MMPI. And to this day, I can wrap all the subscales of the MMPI. And in my final exam was kind of rapping to myself of the the subscales. I will not do that here, but (laughs) thank you. Thank that you. That little voice is the reap is the reaper saying we need to talk before you go because if you do this you may not be able to do that. All right, s- stop that now. <laughs> I, I am not even I. So listeners, now you know. After what is this an episode dozen or whatever it is, I do have a line in the sand. It may have been really? questionable up to this point. That's it, but. That's it, is wow. I am not going to wrap out the subscales of the MMPI. <laughs> Dang. So you got to pay the Reaper. You know, Greg, as you've raised on multiple prior episodes and very nicely is just a reminder of kind of a, but so what? I mean, is that like, is that going to stop us? Is that is it better than not doing anything at all? And so one thing to hammer home in this whole conversation is there are situations and applications and embedding them in broader models where the mean may be just fine. And it may be just fine in that that's where you're going to make a concession so that we can go do other cool things. Mm -hmm. We've established in prior episodes that it's not acceptable to say we're not meeting assumptions, so we're just not going to do it, right? I have five years of data on 300 kids, and I have 10 indicators measuring depression and 10 indicators measuring anxiety. And I want to look at the reciprocal unfolding of depression and anxiety over the five-year period. The only way to do that may be to take mean scores of each and then to move to whatever modeling framework that you might want to do. But to say, oh, well, the mean is the wrong model, so I'm just not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, that alone isn't acceptable. So what it is, is what is our best option? And what strategies do we have for our poke and stick to say, all right, if I were to tweak this a little bit, would I write the same discussion section? Would I make the same substantive kind of conclusions? For me, I worry a little bit less about measurement error. Mm -hmm. All right, to clarify, I worry about a measurement error 
a lot. Mm -hmm. I worry about that a little less relative to the equal weighting of the items. And the assumption that those items are equally weighted for boys and girls in pre-puberty and post-puberty. You know, we've talked about the example of having some, you feel sad, even when you're around people, you don't enjoy hobbies that you used to. And then a third one being you have suicidal ideations to treat those as all equal. That's what keeps me up at night. That's a a clear and present threat to internal validity Mm -hmm. for me. And so the very first thing I want to do is allow them to take on different values if possible. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we can, and I do this in class in the homework assignment, I take a second CFA, estimate the loadings and the item intercepts and the residual variances, and look at the improvement in model fit. It's a drastic improvement in model fit. All right, so now let's do just a a mental experiment Mm -hmm. and think, all right, so they're not all equal to one. Some are stronger, some are less strong. Well, what do you do with that? Mm -hmm. Well, first, we're still assuming unidimensionality, and we're still assuming that those loadings are the same for boys and girls in pre- and Mm post-puberty. But we have these factor loadings that are different, residual variances that are different. Well, way back in the day, and I'm talking 1930s, There were methods using exploratory factor analysis to get what are called factor score Mm -hmm. estimates. The two general approaches that are used are what's called a regression method. It's often credited to Thurstone. Some people argue that Thompson actually was the original developer of that, and Thurstone just had it in his later work. Mm -hmm. And then Bartlett, their their Bartlett scores. So uh, people commonly talk about regression scores and Bartlett scores. And what you do is you pick out these matrices from the factor analysis. And instead of just using ones and zeros as the weighting, you use the values that are obtained from the matrices to get what is often considered a better, Mm -hmm. I'm using air quotes as well, more optimal score that allows for these differences in parameters. Mm -hmm. So those are factor scores, all right? That rockets us into the 1930s. Yeah. So the simple idea is that you use information from the factor analysis to try to upweight and downweight things that are more relevant or less relevant. And that's sort of where we are in nineteen mid-1930s, right? Exactly. Okay. And also taking into account measurement error. There's not only differential weighting of the items, but that there's, uh, there's differences in measurement error as well that brings it in where we're not assuming each item is perfectly assessed. Now, notice at this point, we're still assuming that those factor loadings and measurement errors and item intercepts are the same for boys and girls, Mm -hmm. right? Is going back to last week as we are assuming they are invariant. (laughs) All right. Remember, we still have the drinking game going when we blow the failed rejection of non-invariance. Right. But here's the problem. Well, I don't know if it's so much of a problem as here was the challenge. So these things existed in the early 30s. Why weren't they used routinely then? It took months to do factor analyses. Along in the 70s comes computers and 80s, and then we're able to do AFA, be able to automate these estimation of factor scores. And then there's lots of interesting work done that says, hey, now that we can do this easily and at least relatively quickly, let's compare them to one another. So we'll take a mean score, we'll take a principal component, we'll do an EFA and we'll do a regression and we'll do a Bartlett. You can go multidimensional and if you have two dimensions, we can do oblique or orthogonal. So there are all these things that we can do. Mm -hmm. And then we'll spend a year getting these scores We'll correlate them, and they all correlate with each other (laughs) 0.98. All right? That's right. Like 20 years of research, Uh and they all correlate like 0.98. 
that's a little hyperbolic, but not much. Not much. Some were 0.97. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm, I exaggerate. So 0.97, 0.98. Yeah. Not illogical conclusion is, to paraphrase Howard Weiner, is it don't make no never mind. That's not an unreasonable conclusion. They are interchangeable. Use the easiest one, just unit weight. Out of a lot of that literature, at least in the late 80s, early 90s, was just add them up and divide by how many you have. Yep. But here's Tucker. Our friend Tucker. Ledyard. Ledyard Tucker. Mm-hmm. 1971 wrote a wonderful little paper on measurement, and I don't have the exact quote, but paraphrasing what he concluded was, we need to study scores as they are used. So it's fine to say, I've got the Curran method of scoring and the Hancock method of scoring and a random number generator, and they all correlate 0.98, so it doesn't matter. All right. But that's not how we're using the scores. What we're doing is we want this depression measure that we can go put in a model, that we can go to a latent curve model or a growth model or, you know, whatever you're going to do to examine gender differences in developmental trajectories. So he was arguing way back in 71, study them as you're going to use them in practice. Mm -hmm. Well, along comes one of my favorite papers in all of quantitative methods. And if we could print this out on vellum, put it under a little glass bell, Mm -hmm. I think it is a model for what we should aspire in quantitative methodology. And it's a 2001 Psychometrica piece by Scrondel and Locke. Mm -hmm. It has a wonderful title. Man, I did no preparation for this episode. I think it is Factor Score Regression, something like that. Greg is looking it up now. He will tell me. It is, in my opinion, what we should all aspire to, is it lays out a very real problem. It goes through the analytic derivations. It establishes these conditions under which there is bias and not bias. There's a focus simulation, there's an application, and it's one of the best papers, I think, that's been written in 30 years. If anybody is in the quantitative methods field looking to make unique contributions to the literature, use this as a model. It's remarkable. Have you found the title yet? It's Regression Among Factor Scores. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. Regression Among Factor Scores. I love that. Four words. Uh There are two things about this paper. One is go read it and model your work after it. Two, it strikes the fear of God into everything I have ever done or plan to do in scoring Mm -hmm. because it raises two incredibly important issues. One is whether to use the regression method or the Bartlett method depends on how you're going to use the scores in subsequent analyses. Mm -hmm. And they show analytically and in simulation that if you use regression for IVs and regression for DVs, Mm -hmm. you're going to be biased. If you have Bartlett for IVs and Bartlett for DVs, you're going to be biased and The only proper way under the conditions that they studied were if you regression for IVs and Bartlett for DVs. So you need a different method. And they show analytically and in wonderfully colloquial terms, like Mm -hmm. you actually understand what they're describing, Mm -hmm. they say why that is. So now we're in this horrible situation where... It's not only which scoring method is best, but that's conditioned on, well, how do you plan to use it? So that's the first part of Mm -hmm. striking the fear of God into you. The second one is they unambiguously show that if you have IVs or DVs that are correlated with other factors, so say you have 10 items on depression and 10 items on anxiety, 
that if you score those, even using the correct methods, if you score those in isolation of the other factors, you're going to introduce bias. All right, so if you score depression by itself and then score anxiety by itself, when they're both going to be used as IVs and they're correlated with one another, that that is going to introduce bias into a model where you use depression and anxiety as correlated predictors of some outcome. Wow. Absolutely terrifying. So there's that poke in the eye. So not only, it's like this funnel, right? We're circling the drain as it's like, okay, well, no, no, no. Nobody would ever want all ones on the factor loading. So we need to allow them to be different. Well, if we allow them to be different, we need factor score estimates. Well, there are all these different ways of getting factor score estimates. And now the best of those depends on how you're going to use it. Let's not Consider for the moment, what if you have a variable that's both an IV and a DV at the same time, like a mediator or anything else we do beyond a simple regression? So what the heck do you do with that? As if that's not bad enough, we're still assuming that all those parameter matrices are the same for boys and girls in pre-puberty and post-puberty. I think at the end of the day, you choose the model that is least offensive to you, right? You, you're, you're, what you're doing in so much of what we do is deciding what stuff you want in the limitations section. Because, well, what we, were gonna, what we will do is going to be incorrect. And, and I will tell you that even if we get, even if we get the right scoring, score generating mechanism, we can, we can mess with it very, very quickly with regard to aspects of the data that are just simply non-cooperative. I will leave it at most of what we do is choosing what we can live with in the limitations section. I'll just leave it at that. And I will put a caveat on that Mm -hmm. and is implicit in what you're saying, but we'll make explicit just in my own simple kind of mind. All work that we do have some limitations. You need to be able to articulate it, indicate that you're aware of it. What are the potential implications and how, what did you do to mitigate that in some ways? I love all of that. As long as it's not a clear and present threat to internal validity. Mm -hmm. So if you blow measurement and you say there's a treatment effect when there's not, that's not just a limitation to note. I mean, that's like the core of what we're doing. What that brings us to is another set of work that I have deep respect for from my colleague Dan Bauer. And out of the depths of his remarkably creative brain, he came up with arguably one of the worst acronyms uh, in, in statistics, which is moderated nonlinear factor analysis, or as is commonly said, MULFA. Mm. <laughs> Ooh, can you wrap that? Can you wrap it? <laughs> oh, you almost got me! Son of a... <laughs> All right. No, I cannot. Whatever. But my fingerprints are actually on that because I was guest editor for a special issue of Psych Methods in 09 that Dan contributed that. And he's just a couple of doors down from me and I got the draft and it was Mulfa. And I yelled down the hallway that this is horrible. Get something better. And he emailed me back. And this is one of my biggest regrets I have in in all of that body of work. He wrote back, and for moderated nonlinear factor analysis, he wanted to call it Mona Lifa. (laughs) And I yelled down the hall, and I said, Uh Mulfa is fine. And I so regret that, Uh is because it could be the Mona Lifa Uh model now. 
But what Dan did, and I, I highly recommend you turn to his work. He's got an 09 paper in Psych Methods with Andrea Hussong that was embedded in an integrated data analysis, but he has a recent solo piece in 2017, I think, in Psych Methods where he generalizes it. But what it is is a method that more broadly you can think of as called parameter moderation. Consider a cries easily item, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got cries easily. You worry maybe there's a gender difference for boys versus girls because of whatever societal expectations or things like that. But maybe there are pre or post pubertal differences. All right. You and I both have kids and you know that, I mean, my kids would burst out into tears when they were young if I made them eat a pea right at dinner. Mm -hmm. But post puberty cries easily would be a much more serious indicator of underlying depression other than just not liking peas. Mm -hmm. And so what Dan did is came up with this really creative method where you can write deterministic constraints on item parameters in the factor model that impose systematic shifts in the value of those parameters as a function of the covariance. Mm -hmm. He shows in this 2017 piece that if you have just a binary predictor, that's the same as a multiple group model. Mm -hmm. So you and I talked about that last week of having a multiple group model, boys, girls impose equality constraints, but you literally have gender as a predictor, but it's a weird predictor. You got to get your head around it because it predicts model parameters. Mm -hmm. And you do this through nonlinear constraints and linear constraints that you impose in the model. And it turns out it's actually rather straightforward to do. If you put in that gender effect on, say, the factor loading for cries easily, it has a literally a deterministic shift. And I mean deterministic, there's not a stochastic term, there's not an error term, mm -hmm. but there's a value for girls and a value for boys that's associated with that. But the really amazing thing is whereas the multiple group is limited to membership in discrete groups that you have boys or girls or you have treatment or control, you can use multiple covariates in Dan's approach that can be categorical or continuous. Mm -hmm. So you can have gender, you can have chronological age, and you can have the interaction between gender and age. And now think about the parameters that define that latent factor for the 10 items measuring depression, their item intercepts, their factor loadings, their residual variances. And now instead of just saying, well, there's one lambda, you say, well, the value, remember that it depends? Mm -hmm. The value that that obtains depends upon whether they're a boy or a girl and what is their age and their interaction. And so it's a slider. They can take on an infinite number of values as a function of the combination of these covariates. And so that gives us two things. One, it goes back to how do we use factor analysis is understanding the psychometric model that gave rise to the items. But what I care most about is then using that more complicated model to get scores. Mm -hmm. All right. And so I've written a handful of papers with Dan and Andrea Hussong and other students here in, at Carolina that have done several simulations and several applications where the term we came up with is covariate informed scores. Mm -hmm. And they're very clear ties back to the IRT literature of diff and impact. So we've done kind of three steps, a mean model, they're all factor loadings of one with no measurement, error. 
Factor scores traditionally allow for differential item weighting for residual variability in the items, but then you get these complications raised by Scrondel of Bartlett versus regression scores. And then the third step is using Dan's approach, parameter moderation, to fine tune those. It always goes back to when your mom calls and says, what is the score on the latent variable of depression? And if you say, oh, a randomly drawn person, their score is 2.5. There's no interaction. But if she calls and says, what is a score for a typical person? And you say, oh, that's a great question, mom. You need to tell me, are they a boy or a girl? Do they have an alcoholic parent or not? Mm -hmm. What is their age? And were they exposed to the treatment and control? Because I need all that information to give you the expected score for that individual. That's, I think, the current state of the art. Wow. Extremely complicated. It is a mess. It takes us months to do this. And by us, I mean my RAs. Yeah, sure. Okay, so let me... That mountain bike ain't going to ride itself, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Let me look in from the outside. When I think about going through all of these machinations, I mean, they're tremendous advances, right? There's this hierarchy of going from equal weights to weights that have to do with the relations that items have back to the factors to identifying, well, what's the role that that ultimately will have within a model to identifying the fact that might differ as a function of other things in the model uh, or what you're doing with them to the point where you can now all the way get down to individual parameters within the model being a function of other characteristics. So this has been quite an evolution. If I I hope I got that reasonably right. Okay, great. So now everything that that has been described, the way I think about it is that all of these refinements are occurring, and you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but they're all occurring in the context of a single set of data. But I come up with this ability to generate scores with greater and greater precision in the context of the purpose for which they're going to be used. And that's great because there are a lot of models where I actually need scores to be able to do them, do what I need. You know, I can't just model these latent systems um, all the time by themselves. So now I think about the next person who comes along and fills out this inventory, the person who, who completes the 10 depression items or the whatever items we're talking about. And I say, that person needs a score. What do I do for that person? Right? How do I? Because my understanding is that everything we've done has been further and further refinements in the context of a set of data that helped us to get the parameters, that helped us to swallow the spider, to catch the fly that wiggled and jiggled. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, what, what do I do with this next datum that <sighs> comes in and, and get a score? Is that a fair question to ask? It's a totally fair question, and thus far in my own work has fallen under, that's your problem, not mine. I'm trying to figure out my own Mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. This is one that I I have yet to get my head around because it's a bit of a Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. So let's say I put in a year of work, and you have an established scale, and we get what we believe to be these optimal weights now as a function of the covariates. In principle, you could code those weights on a web portal. Somebody out there in the world has the Hancock Toxic Masculinity Scale that they want to apply in their dissertation. And they get their sample and they pay you the the royalties for that. And they use your items. 
and they have the rectangular data file in principle. And this is not a fantasy. I mean, this would be pretty easy to program. You upload it to a website. It runs it through the sausage maker mm-hmm. that has these idealized weights and gives you back your scores. So there's a lot to be said for that. What's interesting is if you play out, like let's go back 45 minutes and remember that the mean is a factor model mm-hmm. that has factor loadings of one and air residuals of zero, that that's what you're doing. You're uploading your data. It's running it through the sausage maker, but the sausage maker just adds them up and divides by 10 and gives them back. Mm -hmm. You're doing exactly the same thing, but it's a more complicated sausage maker. I'm going to argue that you're not doing exactly the same thing, and here's why. The equal weighting that you put in, however dumb it is, is not informed by the data. Everything else that you talk about is informed by the data, is informed by that particular sample. I could have programmed in that equal weighting without any data, right? I I don't need that. That's right. Yes. So then the question is, you know, I, I can make a more and more refined algorithm to give more and more refined scores, but we have this, we talk about shrinkage corrections in the context of regression, for example, the idea of if we actually build this model in one sample and then we port it over to another sample, to what extent are we going to be able to replicate things? And when we talk about shrinkage and regression, we talk about it in terms of R-squareds, make corrections, great. But thinking about it broadly, if I put in new sets of predictors, new someone has a set of scores on X1, X2, X3, etc., I plug them in, I get out a prediction and I use the weights from that original sample, How good a prediction is that? Well, I don't expect it's going to be as good as a prediction as the one for which I derived those weights. So as I get these fancier and fancier and fancier models, and I put them into this web portal so someone who takes the instrument can input their 10 depression scores, and it spits out this score that I think is incredibly precise if that person had been used in the norming sample, just for lack of a better term. But now I I have to ask myself, how reasonable is that for this particular new observation. And that's that's where I get a little bit stuck. And I'm not I'm ask, not asking you to defend that or, or or anything in particular. It just it's when I have to, you know, generalize, when I have to go to the external validity of these finer and finer and finer machinations and incredible developments, truly incredible. The stuff that, that Dan's done is really, really wonderful. I have to know what that means for the next data point. I couldn't agree more. But here's the paper that needs to be written. And I'll jump aside briefly for a very quick anecdote. I was working with a colleague. She was using a very well-established scale in a smaller sample size. There were maybe 120 people. And she was taking mean scores and doing a fairly straightforward analysis. It wasn't anything crazy. But things were coming out opposite of what was hypothesized. And she was really trying to figure out what was going on. And and we had lunch and she told me about this. And I said, well, just send me the data. I'm just curious. And so I futzed around with it a little bit and I didn't make any further progress than she did. And I did what I often do in these situations, which I think is one of the greatest strengths of the exploratory factor analysis, is I just took the items and I did an EFA. The resulting factor structure bore no resemblance. (laughs) Right. 
what do you do? Mm-hmm. So you've got the ostensible structure that under copyright licensing you're required to use, but it has no correspondence to the characteristics in the empirical data. And I don't have an answer. If somebody wants to write a paper on that, yeah. I would welcome that of just what do you do? Is there a way? Is there a fix? Is there you know, just understanding the scope and the nature of the problem. But Greg, I think it goes back to that is the stuff that we were doing where we got these scores. I don't know the extent to which I would feel confident saying these are now the weights that we should Mm -hmm. use for all other data. But then you start chasing your tail because I worry then about are you overfitting your own data Mm -hmm. Right. So it's fine tuning these scores, but is that only unique to your own data? I mean, these are fundamental philosophical issues in measurement. Yeah. And I don't have an answer for that. Right. And I I'm not trying to poke at you or or poke at any of that work. It it just always leaves me a little bit hanging for the for the next person. And and you go through manuals that are associated with established instruments, and you might see very explicit weighting schemes that are there for the items to generate scores. And you know, it always goes back to whatever norm sample was used in whatever context that was. And to the extent that your data are from that, then maybe, Maybe it works. Um, you know, I can't help but always come back a little bit to to what Wayner said, you know, um, in the context of regression, where if we do a regression where all of the uh, all of the items get their unique slopes, or we do something that's not really regression, we just allow all the predictors to have the same amount of weight, you know, in that context, his concern was that when we get the next sample of data, the next sample of data, the next sample of data, the one where we allow all the variables to have pretty much comparable voice does as well as the fancy stuff, um, if not better, in, ter- in terms of generalizing um, to the next sample, to the next sample, to the next sample. And so there's always that little voice, the it don't make no never mind voice uh, that I can't, I can't quite shake. My colleague described once, and I love this perspective, where he said, the mean is always wrong, but you know how it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of like that is, you know, the mean is always wrong, but you know what you're doing, right? So again, in your mind's eye, you see this factor model that goes with that. Mm -hmm. And you know how it's wrong. And that maybe that's where the reaper is paid because the only reasonable way to do that is to to have a five time point multivariate reciprocal latent curve model is to get a scale score. And the best way to do that is to get a mean. Mm -hmm. And I totally support that. Again, as long as you realize what you're doing and what the potential implications are further down. Everything we're doing in our research group is longitudinal. And not only is it longitudinal, is because of the integrative data analysis aspect, it spans 30 years. Mm-hmm. We have huge issues in longitudinal invariance. And so how do you go about getting these scores that are sensitive to the passage of time? Mm -hmm. We're looking at the development of depression and anxiety in kids who are 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35. The very expression of those changes developmentally over time. And if you don't accurately represent that in your scale score, when you move to some kind of growth model, you're screwed. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a word that I've used to describe those kinds of systems where as kids or other people develop, 
chunks of variables become development developmentally inappropriate, but then new ones become developmentally appropriate. And so you've got this little shifting window and and the way I always think about it, there's a lovely word, imbricate. And imbricate describes how, ta- how uh, tiles, roofing tiles, are laid on top of each other. And that's, that's how I think about those kinds of systems, where we've got a set of variables at an early age, and then in the next age, there are some that overlap, some that don't, and then there are new ones. And then as you go through these imbricate systems where they're partially overlapping, but eventually, you know, you're... you're you're three years down the road and you have none of the same items that you had at your initial time point. And somehow you're supposed right. to be stringing together this, this story about, uh, about depression or about anxiety or whatever it is that you are studying. And that is a, that's a very challenging thing to do. And it's a reasonable thing to want to do. But yeah, sometimes, sometimes the mean is the devil you know. Um, No, exactly. That's exactly right. And what you just described, I love that. I'm going to use that term because it sounds cool and I've never heard that before. Imbricate? Imbricate. Is that what you said? I-M-B-R-I-C-A-T-E. Imbricate. You described exactly what we're doing in the IDA stuff, which is not a lot of five-year-olds use a knife in a fight. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of (laughs) 25-year-olds bite. Mm -hmm. Some do. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're not we're not against it. Let's we're be clear. We're not against biting not, or, or um, knife fights among so don't, I mean, don't email and say we're anti-bitism. <laughs> so let's bring back to a couple of take-home points because I don't see this discussion as wow, I quit. I do feel there are days I feel so overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. I don't want to leave in like this, oh my God, it's overwhelming, we got to quit. So let's think about what are some general take-home points. My main one is I'm going to steal yours, Mm -hmm. which is the cardinal characteristic of any successful academician. Use latent variables when possible. Mm -hmm. If you can in some way maintain a native factor structure where you have a multiple indicator latent factor, if you can do that, that is the best option. Now, that's not the perfect option. We can have another hour conversation about potential problems. Mm -hmm. That is not the truth as God sees it. Um, It's a representation of what the psychometric structure is, but it sidesteps having to get scores. So that's kind of the gold standard. Now, what most of us are doing are working with models where we can't support that. So I have five repeated measures, 10 indicators per factor, and I have two constructs over time. What is that? A hundred indicators, mm-hmm. 10 latent variables, and that's not even with the underlying growth structure. It can't be done. If you have to reduce, then give very con- serious consideration to the mean. The mean is your friend, right? Mm-hmm. The mean is going to pick you up at the airport no matter mm-hmm. how late <laughs> it is. The mean is going to stick to the story when the cops show up. Uh-huh. The mean is there for the you. The mean is going right? to go get your stuff from your ex-girlfriend's house when you can't go back and get it. Am I right? The mean is your friend. It's your buddy. Right? means your buddy. <laughs> the main thing is know what that mean is implying about the psychometric model. Equal contribution, the no measurement error, the uni-dimensionality. Mm-hmm. And if you can sleep at night, 
Knowing that, then there are advantages to that. But also know that there are some really interesting recent advances in these factor scores, whether it be regression or Bartlett, whether it be linear or nonlinear, and whether you move into this moderated parameterization methods of Bauer, but know that there are improvements out there that may represent a poke and stick. Mm-hmm. Try these, compare across models. It is not P hacking. It is not harking. You're, it's a poke and stick. It's a sensitivity analysis. The mean is the enemy who you know. Mm-hmm. And if you have these more complicated approaches and you draw similar substantive conclusions, then that's good information to have. If they're different, well, then refill your coffee, come back and figure out what's going on. That's on you. That's your responsibility. That's right. Mm-hmm. And then there are about 20 papers that need to be written that examine a lot of the issues that we just discussed. My view is, I think as a field, we have collective amnesia about 50 years of work in this area. Mm -hmm. And we have become so enamored with these incredibly complicated mixture, growth, network models And we're all flexing in front of the MCMC mirror, Mm -hmm. (laughs) impressing ourselves. We forgot what is the unit of analysis. And until we feel comfortable with that, we can't move forward into these more complicated settings with any confidence. Yeah, I agree completely. And I'm going to go back to what I said, and that is you have you have to choose what goes in your limitations section, right? You're always going to make a compromise. But that should not stop you from telling the story. Um, just decide where, you know, what you can live with. And this, I, I love talking about this topic. This was great. Thank you very much. And my only final comment on this is, Alexa, play a fart noise. <laughs> so thank you, everyone. <laughs> As always, we appreciate your time. Send us your limericks. I want to hear them as pirates. I want to hear them as Irish. I want to hear them as Irish pirates. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> Sorry. Just... <laughs> I just love the idea that there are even four people out there that Alexa just made a part <laughs> um, We are totally mature. We are super mature. Yes. Yeah, we've demonstrated that week after week. Mm -hmm. Thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much. Take care. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you get your other clearly less favorite podcasts, and leave us a review. And be sure to tell your friends. Oh, also, check us out on Twitter, where our handle is at QuantitudePod. You can also visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, to check out previous episodes and other really cool stuff. You've been listening to Quantitude, Regression to the Mean Personified. Today's episode has been sponsored by Lottery Tickets. Who says numeracy doesn't pay? And by Crowdsourcing Survey Services. Of course those people are answering your questions seriously. Well, as seriously as 13-year-olds masquerading as adults can. And by canonical correlation, the answer to no research question ever. This is most definitely not NPR.